0: He had never in his life sung as now. In the duet of the second act, which is called the seduction duet, he was swept off his feet by the heavenly music and the heavenly voices. As the last melting note died away, he seized Filippa's hands, drew her towards him, and kissed her solemnly, as a bridegroom might kiss his bride before the altar. Then he let her go. For the moment was too sublime for any further word or movement. Mozart himself was looking down on the two. Uh, uh, So, remember, I told you how the apartment viewing had been cancelled? I was I was mistaken. I, I was confusing two different texts. So like twenty minutes ago, like a young uh, Venezuelan migrant family arrived at my door and so I I was planning on watching a few more scenes you're and like, like getting you're
1: like, oh, come in. I'm just watching Danish foreign films. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, do you wanna sit down would you like you wanna sit down and watch Babette's Feast in you're Danish like, with English subtitles? Dude, like languages? I'm really trying to hit the like, w- like wildly eccentric landlord thing.
0: I'm not quite there, but with a little bit of work, I probably could get there. I could probably be again f- someday. I will get good and grumpy on Twitter sometimes and be mm-hmm. like, uh, "Why do people pick up the phone and tell me they can't talk?"
1: <laughs> you know, like get off my just... lawn. <laughs> exactly. I have a certain is uh, is is like that. Bet's feast like image uh, for you in that particular moment. Um, somebody like picking up the phone while your visage and the flames of hell are, like, superimposed together. And that person kind of, like, picks up the phone and says, like, I can't talk. And that is, like, the the image of hell for you.
0: I, I don't feel as though that it's quite at that level of hell. I just don't understand why somebody would bother... Picking up their phone to tell me they can't talk right now when they could just let it go to voicemail. And I still actually maybe am like wildly old fashioned and will leave you a voicemail when and expect that you will listen to it and maybe roughly within 24 to 48 hours respond to me. To me, that is the convention that makes the most sense since it's the one I grew up with. And that feels perfectly normal. I still remember my father's uh, tape answering machine message. Hello, this is Frank Duke speaking on the answering machine. I can't take your call right now, but if you leave your name, your number, and a brief message, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. You know, and then you leave it, and then you get home from work, and you hit play, and the tape rewinds, and it plays all your messages, and you write them down on a piece of paper, and then when convenient, you call those people back, as God intended.
1: (laughs) We kill each other, as God intended. (laughs) Sportsman-like. Do you want to... Yeah, we're going to start with, uh, we're going to give you guys a quick rundown of, uh, what happens in this?
0: Oh, and maybe we should say in a more sort of formal way that today we are discussing the first of our foodie films. It is Axel Gabriel's 1987, do I think I think I have that right? Yep, 1987 correct. film, Babette's Feast. And where does it begin, Chris Bagg?
1: Uh, I mean, it begins it and ends um, true, in true. a village in Denmark by the sea, uh, we are introduced to our two. I don't even know if they're main characters. There's so much about this movie that is not standard. This um, movie is
0: very hard. It's it's very hard to define certain aspects of it. It has it is it is it is, it is tugging at me in various ways. But they yeah. are they are two major characters. That's two, for sure. Yeah, two Whether two. Whether you call works. them protagonists or not, I don't I don't think they are protagonists.
1: Yeah, that's one of my questions for later. Uh, yeah. Who is the protagonist, who is the antagonist, if there are any. Um, but we, we learned that they are uh, no longer in the first flush of youth, right. uh, is the description that we get through um, a narrator. We hear that they do a lot of charity for the people in their village, which is a basically a religious sect. Um, it mm-hmm. was founded by their father, uh who is now deceased and um seems to be some flavor of protestantism i think Oh for sure yeah they i mean they're named
0: uh Martina and Philippa after Martin Luther and his best friend Philip got um, it but they're dressed like puritans but yeah. so they're they're very protestant and they're um i'm not sure exactly what what sect but they're quite protestant
1: uh time gets a real sort of like Loosey-goosey treatment in here. Um, We jump around a fair bit. Uh, We kind of begin, as far as I can tell, there's three time signatures. There is the recent past, there's the distant past, and then most of the action in the second half of the movie takes place in the present, Um, which is about 14 years after where we begin um the uh the but we get quickly a flashback to the sisters are young they have two potential paramours that don't work out uh Martine and a young officer named Lawrence and Philippa and an opera singer Ashley Pepon uh both of those don't work out um they are sent away mostly because the father is not cruel or controlling, but is really focused on having his daughters there so he can continue to run this sect of uh, this sort of puritanical. Though when I say puritanical, it sounds, you know, really kind of awful. Um, but it's just a. It's kind of a. It's a, a strict. They're, they're, they're strict. They're not. They're not. I don't.
0: I mean, I don't see them as. It's a really interesting question about how oppressed. I think one of the questions of this film is, is this community a you know, a kind of oppressed, p- patriarchal community, mm-hmm. or is it, is it a community of people who are choosing to live very simply yeah. um, and to eschew certain pl- uh, uh, pleasures? One thing I'll say is that the, it, I don't really think the father sends them away. Lawrence, the officer, finds himself kind of tongue-tied and kind of leaves out of his own sense of embarrassment, I mm-hmm. think. Um, and uh, Philippa's uh, uh, potential paramour, Achille Papin, who is a brilliant opera singer and a bit older, there's a moment where he is a bit too forward in a lesson that makes her uncomfortable. Um, now, why it makes her uncomfortable, I think, is an interesting question that I will raise later as well. Um, but he is training her, uh, teaching her, uh, because she has a beautiful singing voice, to be an opera singer. And she's going along with that at first, but she becomes uncomfortable and asks her father to send him away. And um, her father and her it- is
1: quite satisfied.
0: He's, yeah, he, he, he's very happy with that outcome.
1: Yeah, that's a, a positive outcome. But for it did him.
0: come from Philippa. It did not come from the father. Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be interested to talk about that later. Uh, I actually have a reading from the, the original story cued of that moment,
1: too. Got it. Uh, so nice um they get to be middle-aged or or we we return to the more recent past um and uh we learn that uh we get our our title character babette uh shows up she is a friend of the opera singer pepon uh she has been forced to flee france as part of the french revolution uh no no no, it's, no, it's the, not the it's French the, Revolution. Whatever the
0: conflagration of 1871 was, that, yes, that yeah, led you're right. to the Parisians. Like, Wait commune. a second, French Revolution 100, 100 is 100 years after, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> not 1879. Um, no, I, I, I read a little bit about it because I was
0: curious about the same thing, and mm-hmm. um, it, it all came about after a particularly embarrassing defeat uh, by Napoleon the Third, and then there mm-hmm. was a kind of proletariat
1: takeover of Paris. Um, Uh, But it's not really explained in the movie. Um, The sisters at first say that they can't afford to hire anyone, and she agrees to cook and clean for free. And I'll kick it back over to you. Sure. Um Years go by, you see some of this,
0: you see Babette becoming more kind of accepted in the village. You see the quality of the food that the sisters eat vastly improve from a kind of ter- terrible boiled fish stew <laughs> and bread soup. <laughs> and bread soup that has the it has the, it has roughly the texture of baby feces. Yeah. <laughs> um and uh and doesn't ap- appear to taste much better. Um and um, she becomes, you see her learn Danish and sort of become, she starts, you know, bargaining, driving a hard bargain with the fishmongers and sourcing the ingredients. And she, she kind of comes into her own. Um, everybody likes her. The sisters are very, they, they say at some, something like, you know, thank you. Thank you, God, for sending us Babette. They, uh, there's an interesting moment where they note that they're saving a little bit more money now, perhaps because Babette is helping out around the mm-hmm. house or something. I don't. We don't she's quite know how She's got great culinary play. math. Yeah, uh, yeah, she's saving them money, right? Exactly. Um, and 14 years go by, and the other thing that happens is the villagers. The father dies, the sort of patriarch of the religion, and in his absence, the villagers get. Kind of increasingly bitter in mm-hmm. their or, old age, and the, the two sisters sort of try to, to remind remind them that her their father always wanted everybody to get along and love one another, and they all just start complaining about kind of old jealousies and business deals gone awry and things like that, and they're getting increasingly cranky and hardened, and then Babette wins the lottery. We've heard that she has one friend in Paris who buys her one lottery ticket a month or something like that. That's great. And it hits. And she wins ten thousand francs, which is probably like a million dollars or something like that. You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's money anyway. And so apparently she's going to leave and the sisters are quite sad, but they're they're, I would say, fundamentally decent. They're not gonna try to cheat her of that money or steal mm-hmm. it. They it's hers. And they're prepared for her to leave. And she says, well, before I go, I want you to grant me one favor. I would like to cook a proper French dinner for you for your father's birthday and all of his disciples. And at first they're reluctant. um, And but then she says, you know, have I ever asked you for anything at all, ever? and they're like you know that's a good point she really hasn't so so they agree
1: except for asking to work for free except for asking to work for free like, i was yeah. like wait that's no, the only have, other request You thing. have asked for something before in fact sort of
0: but but <laughs> since then not much and and you can tell that i mean that they are grateful to have her around yeah. she definitely enriches their their household even though she is one senses stifling some of her French culture and personality Mm -hmm. in order to fit into this very severe, plain, strict uh, village. Um, So they agree, and the sisters are reluctant. And I'll let you take it from there.
1: Babette makes the dinner. Um, The group of villagers uh, eat it. At at first, they all call a meeting because uh, Martine... Is very worried that they are going to come to this dinner and basically consign themselves to the fires of hell. Well, and, and uh, she's
0: seeing some of the preparations, which is yes. rather elaborate. Probably
1: no dinner
0: with this elaborate preparation has ever happened at this village before.
1: Yeah, we're in we're in uh, Jutland, uh, which is um, which is a, a part of Denmark with a, a very strong literary tradition. It shows up in Hamlet. Uh, it shows up in a bunch of different places. And it's very often talk it shows up in Beowulf. Um hmm. it is uh Ueland is always kind of held up as the place where the yokels live. Interesting. Like it's never depicted in literature as like a nice place. Right. Um and yes, it, this like fantastic French meal is being prepared there. Uh Martine sees a live turtle in the kitchen um, a cow's head i mean all sorts of um very over-the-top things and she's really worried about what this means in a society that is ostensibly oriented towards austerity and um the villagers out of respect for martine say we're going to eat the meal we are not going to offend babette we are not going to offend our hosts we're not going to say anything about the food at all, right? Like, uh, and so they sort of agree to go along with it. Martin is uh, happy about that. The day approaches. Uh, the meal comes. The villagers eat the meal, which is fantastic. One important, there's one important guess. Uh, the general guest. Lawrence. Right. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, Lawrence has returned. Um, and, uh, has, as he's arriving, we, we get to see this, he's getting dressed to go to this dinner and he has a kind of meditation on his life where he says that most of what he has done has been for vanity's sake. And in a really like brilliant moment, he even talks with his younger self, uh, saying I've achieved everything that you set out to achieve. And I find it somewhat I'm I'm concerned that maybe everything I've done has been for for vanity's sake only. And he's kind of going to this dinner knowing that he's going to get to see this love of his from his youth again, and maybe get a sense that not everything was for naught. He he's really holding this dinner up as a test of the world um and its fairnesses and or unfairnesses to him. Right. Um in a makes... way, it
0: seems like he's hoping it will not be a good time so as to validate his choice to essentially leave uh, Martine. Um, and I mean, that was the sense I got that he was actually sort of like, this is my chance to, to realize that I did, in fact, make the right decision, leaving her behind and focusing on my career.
1: And I think we'll talk about this later. He is both proved wrong and proved right. Through yes. this sort of amazing setup of circumstance, in which Babette does cook this absolutely incredible meal, um, the general talks about another incredible meal that he has had in Paris at the Café Anglais, um, the one of the, the premier um, premier establishments in all of Paris that was run. By, or that the kitchen was run by a female chef, which in the Very 1960s unusual. would have been incredibly unusual. Um, and we're beginning to, you know, think, suspect that maybe Babette is that particular chef uh, by this point in the movie. Um, and uh, we get to see the general's experience of the dinner conflated with the experience of the villagers and everybody loves the dinner it is great um but the villagers are kind of given permission to love the dinner by the general's enjoyment of it mm. um and we we slowly begin to see that in fact this dinner is truly over the top and truly incredible um and um yeah Martine and Lawrence get one final interaction uh Laurens confesses his love that he has felt his entire life for her and she says the same uh but he says that uh the body is foolish and so they will be married in spirit essentially for the rest of their existences and he gets in a sleigh and departs and
0: the disciples the villagers are once again reminded of their kindness love and regard for one another and through this pleasurable experience that they have feared are actually reminded of the kind of, I don't know, brotherhood is not quite the right word because they're women, but the the shared humanity they have with the other villagers. And there's a moment where they kind of stagger out in their kind of food hangover outside and the stars are beautiful and they join arms uh, and they sing around the well. And it is, they have not had that much happiness uh, in each other's company Probably since the old, you know, uh, the old man died, and maybe not even prior to, perhaps ever. Yes, um, I would, and it, it, I but would it argue is still, that. it is still rather chaste. Um, yeah. Nobody has become a hedonist become a, because of this dinner, and in a way, it is almost as though the dinner has helped them rediscover the joy of their rather austere
1: existence,
0: as opposed to simply feeling sort of oppressed, bitter, and strict about it
1: yeah they are they are of a religious sect that looks to the afterlife as right. the proof of their existence and they experience in this dinner a moment of mundane joy of non-divine joy of right. uh, joys joys of the flesh but not as i think they suspected sinful joys
0: right right and I guess the one other thing is that then Babette reveals the sisters come. They congratulate Babette and they say, we're really going to miss you. And Babette says, I'm not going back to Paris. And I don't have any money because I spent it all on the dinner. And yes, I was the chef at Café Anglais where dinners often cost 10,000 yeah. francs. a <laughs> dinner for 12
1: um, is 10,000 francs.
0: Right. And so she spent all of her fortune. So one assumes she's just going to continue to live As the maid uh, to the sisters for the rest of their lives and her lives, perhaps, though, perhaps maybe one might hope that she is allowed to express her, you know, French cuisine heritage in the future, Um, that perhaps she's earned a little bit more creativity uh, in her in her cooking. But but. Who knows? Maybe not. I mean, she certainly doesn't have any money to order turtles. Um, um, well, so I, we've kind of alluded at this, but my first question for you is, what do you think the filmmaker's tone is with regard, uh, this is a crisp question, with I regard to... to the sisters and the villagers and the disciples?
1: So the one thing that I am coming away from this movie is the gentleness and the kind of sophistication of how it conveys what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. This is a movie where I mean, just in our just in our roundup, you know, like your your little line here, Babette cooks the meal, the villagers eat it. Fiend. <laughs> it's a bit of a joke, because it's the well, final yes. third of the movie. Totally. Right? Yeah, but yeah. like I understand why you're making that joke. This movie, yep. if like if you showed this to somebody I don't know anyone under 20 (laughs) like and uh, you know to our teenage listeners out there I apologize I'm not uh, I don't mean to be reductive of your anybody under 25 (laughs) get off my yard
0: We need, like, a recorded get off my yard. I was, I was thinking about, like, I could imagine, I was like, what Marvel character could exist in this? And I was imagining, like, Wolverine having, like, mm-hmm. a 15-year sojourn mm-hmm. in this Jutland village, you know, chopping wood and, like, kind of being a servant, you know, before, like, Professor Xavier shows up and is like, we need you again,
1: you know. I kind of think Fat Thor would love it here. Fab Thor? Fat Thor. Oh, Fat Thor. Does he get fat? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's uh, a great scene uh, where he kind of gives up and moves to a fishing village and gets fat. I didn't see that. Uh, you know, oh. um, uh, I haven't, you know, I have only watched
0: so many. But but so continue with yeah. your thought. Are, are you getting to Tone or are you going somewhere else?
1: <laughs> I'm getting to Tone. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, the reason I'm talking about pe- people under 20 is I think that unless you have, like, a wildly difficult experience growing up um, – I don't think this movie's kind of sophistication is really going to land for you in any way um, because this movie to me is really about the beliefs that you hold that eventually can become, that can eventually hold you back rather than helping you exist in the world, which is what belief, belief systems are supposed to do. Like they are supposed to help you make sense of all of this, which really is too much. For like you know for people to really uh, understand um, and I think the tone of voice of the movie is gentle uh, but I think that it is not mocking but it's not not mocking <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I think that we are meant to understand that this way of life while it does have its upsides in terms of simplicity and austerity and community perhaps these villagers have taken it too far and i think that the filmmaker's tone of voice is don't get too don't get too strict don't get too harsh don't get hedonistic but you know what that like the spice of life is variety and difference and there are joys in this world that are just as wonderful as the promised joys of the next world and in fact i think the tone of voice is that the promises of this world are more real than the promises of the next of the next world
0: yeah i hadn't really thought about the world thing but i I i liked how you put it's not mocking not not mocking i think i agree i think it's I think it is it is a movie about the dangers of excessive moderation.
1: Yes. I think you're right. Yeah.
0: And there's still a quiet... There's a dignity yeah. in these characters, and I think it ultimately respects that they have chosen the life that they have chosen, and that there is something virtuous, beautiful, and simple about that. But in making that choice, they have actually they have found they have slid into an extreme mm-hmm. of moderation that that required an an adjustment of a kind and essentially it's the adjustment that babette provides to them yeah uh, um
1: in um have you ever seen um the birdcage yes so there's a moment in the birdcage when nathan lane's character is attempting to pass as straight And they dress him up in a suit and teach him to walk like John Wayne. (laughs) And it works up until the moment that he sits and sort of stiffly crosses his legs, not in a feminine manner, but in a masculine manner where one puts the ankle on the opposite knee. Right. And it is suddenly revealed that he is wearing bright pink Socks (laughs) Socks <laughs> and Robin Williams and the I don't know the main uh, it's it's the guy who plays Apu Hank Azaria no Hank Azaria is the um, oh the Guada- the Guatemalan is, the, uh, servant. is is the servant I'm trying to remember just sort of the the son the main like he's not the oh, main the character sun. yeah I know but what you mean. they're watching this and they see the pink sock and there's this moment where they're like. Oh, yeah, and Nathan Lane says something like, "What one wants a hint of color," <laughs> and I feel like that particular moment, I, that movie is amazing, and and Lakaja Falls is amazing, and what the Birdcage manages to do, especially when it was when it came out, was it really threads the needle um, from this place of not understanding LGBTQ queer existence um, and understanding it in the same way that I think that Babette brings to this particular village's place. Yeah. Uh, where that she reintroduces a hint of color. She doesn't remake the village. She doesn't like completely upend their way of life, but through her gift and by enlarging, by uh, embiggening, uh their world, um, she really makes a, a change in the way that they treat each other um, because they have gotten cantankerous and cruel towards each other, and she fixes that.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Or at least at least for the night. Yeah. Um, although I guess the introduction maybe suggests that she has fixed it for a longer time because the introduction takes place in the present, I think after the dinner or around the time of the dinner, and it does, you, you see the old people getting fed their soup, nodding happily, yeah. um, which suggests that the state of affairs has, has yeah. been made somewhat more pleasurable.
1: Um, so my question for you is, what, what genre do yeah. you think this movie is? i uh, going to give you a circular answer. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's all we do.
0: I mean, in films, this would be a, they would just, call, it's an easy answer, right? Be, they would just call it a period drama, right? It's its a comedy of manners. It is a Merchant Ivory type production. Um, but that's not really genre in the literary sense, which is what yeah. kind of story is this? You know, the short story, this was based on a short story by Karen Blixen, a.k.a. Isaac Dennison. I read a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this movie hues very, very closely to the story, as far as I can tell, that Karen Blixen wrote. Karen Blixen's short story collection, in which this story appears, is called Anecdotes of Destiny, which is wow. like, can you imagine <laughs> naming a short
1: story collection Anecdotes of Destiny? You, you, it, you would have to really... Either be fantastically confident, or <laughs> brand new to all this, or poorly translated. Yeah, uh,
0: I don't, I don't know, but, but it. My answer to your question is: This is an anecdote
1: of destiny. <laughs> it, it's something like a parable or a myth. Yeah. Oh, um, it's very, yeah, it is and, very uh, parabolic. And I think, I think
0: it, it's a movie about. Destiny and it's a movie about the paths our lives take and whether we make the right choices or not and what are what are the implications of those choices and how do we make sense of those mm-hmm. choices I think and so I don't know if that's a genre that exists, um, but I'm going to go ahead and just call it It's an Anecdote of Destiny. It's not quite like a Greek tragedy level of myth, but it is something like a parable. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wouldn't call it an allegory because the characters are very much themselves. It's Mm -hmm. not like Babette stands in for sort of like pleasure. You know, you can certainly associate certain qualities with different characters, but the characters in and of themselves are complex and -hmm. they have all of the different forces that are kind of very, very, very quietly warring with each other in this movie exist in all the characters, which is why it's interesting, you know, that that the characters experience temptation towards hedonism and they experience fear and they experience longing and they experience um, desire for something bigger and they experience contentment in a simple mundane pleasure. Um, So, yeah, I'm going to go with uh, Anecdote of Destiny. Uh, What's (laughs) your answer to your own question?
1: Um, I think this is a comedy. Ah,
0: well, if you're asking, is it a comedy or a tragedy, that one well, is very, very, very
1: tough. Totally. I mean, we could go I mean, we could go back to the, like, what are the seven stories? Um, and uh, Rob Harvilla did an episode about this recently yeah. um, when he was talking, unbelie- uh, believe it or not, about the chick song, Goodbye, Earl. Um, He opens the whole show saying that there are seven stories, but really there are eight. And the eighth great story of humankind is Con Air. Um, (laughs) Everybody go listen. It's an amazing monologue. But he does go through and say two of them are tragedy and comedy and says, those seem way too broad for me. Well, are you using comedy
0: in the sense of a Shakespearean comedy, meaning a happy ending? Or are you using comedy in the sense of Hollywood, which means funny things
1: happen? Both. Mm. I think that this functions um, structurally like a comedy. Um, in the end, we have two characters coming together due to the nature of the, um, the action, Mm -hmm. um, that Lauren's and Martine do get a chance to confess their feelings for each other and have some sort of connection that is going to go forward into the future, even if it's just a spiritual connection. Um, but I think starting right around the moment when Martine begins to suspect That this dinner is going to be more than she and the villagers can handle spiritually. Mm -hmm. And she calls a meeting and expresses to them in sort of horror what they are all about to be in for. That I begin to think that this is all just this marvelous and still good-natured joke that is being told to us. It's not mean in any way. Like I really do think that the characters are treated gently Mm. and fairly, but watching Martine's face, she even goes to the meeting dressed all in black and all of the villagers come to the dinner party as if they're headed to a funeral. As Babette is laying the table, there's this incredible moment. She is setting the table. Martine comes and takes down the portrait of yeah. their father. Yeah. yeah. Um and and get we get the sense that he's put back up somewhere else. Right. But not overseeing the dinner. Yes. Like and, she's not
0: going to let him see it.
1: Yeah. And it was at those particular moments that I was like, "Oh, this is very funny." <laughs> I mean, I thought I thought
0: comedy was being used for characterization throughout the entire film. Like I think Achille Papin, the opera singer, and his very chaste love for Philippa is played sort of comedically in her response to that. Um, even young Lorenz, his sort mm-hmm. of comic, I mean, it's visual comedy. He looks ridiculous. Like his, his hair is too big for his head. He's too skinny for his outfit There, you know, and it also made me think of just how important casting is for a film, you know, mm-hmm. and when you're doing storytelling, because all of these characters look exactly right. They, I think, they look, yeah. ex- and so much of the story is conveyed in how they look and the way they age, but also the way they look as young people. Um, and so I th- I think, and you know, when he, there's a moment where Lawrence is sort of sitting next to um, uh, 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 Martine and she invites him to sit down and he's smiling and then he just kind of like, has this terrible like burp pickup thing <laughs> happening <laughs> yeah. and he's so embarrassed by that that he has to get up and leave and that that's the straw that breaks the camel's back um and the one thing that is sort of different about the karen blixen uh story is this this whole backstory in his family about that involves like witches of the mountains or something like silencing a man or something so apparently he has some kind of anxiety around around speaking too but yeah. i think i think comedy is used sort of Throughout the film, mm-hmm. but it's always very, very quiet. It's never the sort of comedy that makes you laugh out loud, except for probably the greatest moment of that is when the film is trying to draw the particular contrast, it's trying to draw in the most strong way, which is Babette's preparation of the sinful fe- feast and Martine and the other villagers' fear yeah. of the pleasure. That is about to be summoned forth, like a witch summoning, you know, Satan from her cauldron. And literally, she has a cauldron into yeah. which she is putting all sorts of grotesque things, like a pig's head and chickens' feet, and um, you know, all sorts of other. Um, there's, there's some
1: real like visual references to Roman Polanski's Macbeth. <laughs> oh, interesting! It, like you have this real like moment of, and just the superimposition of Martine's face and the flames of hell. Yeah. And the head of the cow and the poor turtle. Um, it, it really, like, it, I, That that's one of the reasons why I said, like, if you weren't, if you aren't, like, over 25, like, this movie is going to strike you, I think, as, like, like, sort of hopelessly self-interested and, and like, precious and boring. Yeah. And I think, actually, it is hilarious. <laughs> and I, I, it's not totally comic, but I would say that, this, that it mostly functions as a comedy.
0: Well, and I, I, I was thinking today about whether in the Shakespearean sense I would call it a comedy or a tragedy. And I think it's either a comedy that is extraordinarily sad or it's a tragedy with a tremendously joyful silver, silver lining. If our protagonist is Babette, Babette's story is profoundly sad mm-hmm. And the ending she gets her moment, she proves her point, and she gets to she gets to once again feel the power and the competency and the joy and the craft of being an artist in the way that she wants to be. only one more time, and she's like fifty, and she's going to live another thirty years and it's It's very hard for me to say whether this is a sad comedy or a happy tragedy., yeah. um, but it is a movie that very much makes me feel joyful at the end of it because it 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 is very much pointing at what is precious mm-hmm. in the mundane of life. and And so it feels whether it's a comedy or tragedy, it feels very celebratory, even as it's tremendously bleak. So when Babette wins the lottery, I I think 10,000 francs is probably like a million. Like, you could retire on that. I think yeah. she could have gone back to Paris, bought a house, had a small sort of, you know, she could have invested the money, lived off the interest for the rest of her life. Uh, she might not be able to, you know, go back to Café Anglais and be the head chef, but she could probably cook and reestablish her life she could probably stay in denmark and open up a small cafe where she serves french food maybe not quite as good as you know she might not be able to source all the ingredients the way that she sourced them for the feast um but she could probably get some pretty good ingredients Mm -hmm. you know and make do some pretty good instead she chooses to spend her windfall on this one thing yeah and i i'm gonna what do you think the film is telling us about to me, I don't really fully understand that choice. To me, it feels like the wrong choice for mm. her, even though I love this movie where we get to see the effects on her and everybody else of that choice. I love it as an aesthetic and narrative choice. Uh, but if I, you know, if I were Babette's best friend, I'd be like, "That's a great idea, but maybe don't do that. Mm-hmm. Maybe, um, what do you think
1: about?" what do you think the movie is telling us about why she makes that choice so again i think i think this is another kind of amazing choice by the director everybody like everybody involved in the creation of this because so babette comes from a world where um we have some suspicions about the the nature of that particular culture uh the opera singer Pepin. Um, he says that he is by, by the time that he ages, he's forgotten by his fans. Um, just a, an old man kind of passing into irrelevance. Right. Uh, Lawrence kind of talks about that his entire life, which is in, which is in this world of kind of culture and whatnot, um, has all been for vanity's sake. Um, he's very concerned that that's the case. And Babette is, is of that world. And we, we learn that because of the general of Lauren's talking about the food that she's made during the dinner and right. just about how incredible it is and how it basically is um, the milk and honey of that particular class right. of that. So like very over the top kind of place.
0: It's about, it's about creating expensively, meticulously sourced, perfectly prepared culinary works of art for the absolute richest people in the society to enjoy, while meanwhile there are probably people sleeping in the streets in their own filth.
1: Right, yeah. And, and It's the, a corrupt world. It's a corrupt world, yeah. It's, it's a world not unlike our world. Um, you know, any, any world where the forces of capitalism have triumphed. Um, and so there's enough hints that that world is not the ideal. In the same way that we get enough hints that the puritanical world is also not the ideal. Um, what I think this movie is, is sort of trying to get to is the sense that like somewhere in the middle is the right way to be. Yeah. And Babette owes her life to these two sisters. She comes and maybe it's somewhat melodramatic. Maybe it's overwrought. Maybe it's the director and the novelist poking fun at melodramatic works of fiction that kind of have this. If, you, if you've ever seen uh, Love and Death um, by uh, Woody Allen's Love and Death, there are these hilarious long stretches where they just talk about wheat. Um, and it's very kind of poking fun at the melodrama of like Russian Right, um, right 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 russian literature and yeah. and i feel like something similar is going on here though also babette's feast could get lumped in with that same kind of uh somewhat self-important um figuring though i think that the movie is a lot better than that um so uh how i'm trying to answer this question i promise <laughs> um Babette owes the sisters her life. We see that early on, where when they first say that they can't take her in, and she says, there's nothing for me then except death. And they, um, they change, they say, okay, we don't want that. Um, and she says that she'll work for free. So these sisters have essentially given Babette a life. She is faced with the prospect of returning to that world of culture, and the choice she makes is kind of amazing where she was like, I'm going to bring that culture here. Mm -hmm. And the marrying of that culture and Babette's desire to repay the debt that she owes the sisters in this puritanical society creates perhaps a new society. And that's why I think that this is essentially a comedy because comedy Mm. is about things going on or moving forward. well, so do you think
0: the sisters and Babette are going to be happier than they have been for the rest of their days, or do you think the night of the feast is a a beautiful exception?
1: Oh, I hope not. I th- maybe this is a uh, maybe this is a place where you and I flip roles a little bit because um, uh, because sometimes I am I, I'm making the case for the, you know, the the the, the Jennifer Egan novel, um, which, you know, I, I love the way that you described it once, where you were like, these are bad people doing bad things. <laughs> and um, and sometimes I love living in that world. I really hope that this movie is about a new world order mm. that comes from the marrying of two extremes and a more moderate way of looking at things. Um, I really... though, I think it's complicated because, like, at the end of the movie, the shots that we have of Babette, she isn't happy. Like, yeah. maybe she is. Maybe she's satisfied. But the shots that we see of her after the dinner are a little bit more... Um, like a kind she's of come down. S- spent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and
0: Nord, I mean, I think she... Yeah, I think her happiest moment is making the dinner. And I think her happiest moment, weirdly, she never peeks her head in to take in the sight of Mm. these Puritans, you know, enjoying the food. Um, And so her most pleasurable moments are when she sips the wine or when the, I guess, cart driver or the, the carriage driver kind of comes in and she kind of... Feeds him sort of the servants portion, and yeah. and and they have this lovely little, and he is just blown away by the food, and, <laughs> and, and it's part of the comedy that you're talking about, and but one almost all it also creates this interesting sense of space where one sort of like you know. Probably the kitchen would be the funner place to be mm-hmm. um, than the dining room, even oh, yeah. though profound things are happening in the dining room to be sure, like you kind of want to hang out with the kitchen with the the servants because they're the ones who are sort of like they're sipping the wine bottle and they're you know they're enjoying everything else, but they also don't have to wear those like you know stuffy clothes and and you know like work on their posture and use their fork the right way Um, but that's interesting I feel like if I watch this again and I think I will I'm gonna I'm gonna look for clues about the answer to this and I think part of it is that one of the real questions that would help me answer this is whether the very first scene is set before or after the dinner and I don't know that that's particularly clear it's around the time because the sisters are old And Babette is about 50, which is what she, I think she's about 35, 40 when she shows up. And she's about 50 when she cooks the dinner, although she doesn't appear to age. Uh, Yeah, it's got the um, same
1: sort of like, um, maybe this is true, maybe this is not. Um, European films seem to have a looser relationship to verisimilitude. Hmm. Than um, American movies, oh. and maybe that's accurate, and maybe that's not. <laughs> I don't. I I
0: I took it more that sort of Babette kind of looked like an old thirty-five year old, and then the and then looks like a young fifty-year old, like the, yeah. and be because she's not. Because life is not particularly taxing in this place. It might not be very interesting, but it's also not particularly taxing. She can kind of maintain. And there's something, I also think it's kind of a symbol of her inner vitality. You know, filmmaking Mm -hmm. is very, so much of the film has to be told visually and through acting. And I think the way the characters look and even the way they age is very much part of the story here.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, we get to see these characters. They they do a really wonderful job of aging them slightly. And you spend a lot of time wondering, is that the same puritanical woman? And then you think, yes, yes, it is, I think.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I looked up to figure out which, you know... There are young and old version of the sisters and Lauren's, mm-hmm. too. But I wasn't even sure because the actors really resemble each other. Yeah. Like you could I, immediately I wondered... tell, oh, that's old Martine and that's old Philippa and that's old Lauren's. Like it, it they, they, it's a wonderful. They do a yeah, very they, good job. They even job. do
1: a wonderful double exposure uh, cut mm. of uh, young Martine turning into old Martine yeah um and yeah i wa- I was wondering if the actor that played Lawrence was the the same because they really it just so I was like god I guess you could do it with like some hair and some makeup he, but his face is so much fleshier I don't yeah. know how you would do that um
0: it I mean I, I know it's possible they yeah. they have they do have the technology but I don't i don't I don't think so I think uh, I think there's young well we could look it up. That yeah. would be amazing if that were the case. I don't think so, be, though, because I looked up the actor who plays the old version of him, and he was in a lot of Ingmar Bergman films in the '50s as a kind of young or middle-aged man. Mm. So, you, I don't think he could play the young version. Yeah.
1: Um, who do you think the antagonist of
0: this movie is? I, I don't. I don't think the film has an antagonist. I, I think that the forces of opposition that stand in our character's way are contained in each one of them. Hmm. I want to hear more about that. Well, again, we can go back to, you know what? To partly answer your question, I'm going to read you, um, the reading that I wanted to do because I think it fits. Um, so this is from anecdotes of destiny by Karen Blixen, not the screenplay, but this is what it was based on. So, um, this is the scene where Achille, uh, Papin, who is a older, you know, middle-aged opera singer. His career is kind of in decline. He goes to this village. He meets, um, Philippa. She has an absolutely amazing voice. He's going to train her. They're doing a voice lesson and he's kind of falling in love with her, but he's also dreaming about how she's going to help him revitalize his career. hmm he had never in his life sung as now. In the duet of the second act, which is called the seduction duet, he was swept off his feet by the heavenly music and the heavenly voices. As the last melting note died away, he seized Philippa's hands, drew her towards him, and kissed her solemnly, as a bridegroom might kiss his bride before the altar. Then he let her go. For the moment was too sublime for any further word or movement. Mozart himself was looking down on the two. Philippa went home, told her father that she did not want any more singing lessons, and asked him to write and tell Monsieur Papin so. The dean said, And God's paths run across the rivers, my child. When Achille got Dean's letter, he sat immovable for an hour. He thought, I have been wrong. My day is over. Never again shall I be the divine Papin. And this poor weedy garden of the world has lost its nightingale. A little later, he thought, I wonder what is the matter with that hussy? Did I kiss her by chance? In the end, he thought, I have lost my life for a kiss, and I have no remembrance at all of the kiss. Don Giovanni kissed Zerlina, and Achille Papin pays for it. Such is the fate of the artist. In the dean's house, Martine felt that the matter was deeper than it looked and searched her sister's face for a moment slightly trembling she too imagined that the Roman Catholic gentleman might have tried to kiss Philippa she did not imagine that her sister might have been surprised and frightened by something in her own nature Achille Papin took the first boat from Berlevague of this the visitor from the great world of this visitor from the great world the sisters spoke but little they lacked the words in which to discuss him
1: the more i talk about this movie the more i get the the more my fondness for it grows i watched it last night and i was it was quizzical i've never seen it before i've of course heard about it and you're struck with all of the the cliches of foreign films um long shots of landscapes, waves, seagulls, people looking at the waves and the seagulls, <laughs> lots of costumes, lots of silence, tablecloths, tablecloths, <laughs> handles. And and then I mean just that passage like so much about that passage that you read Shuttles back and forth between what the characters know, what they think they know, and what they don't have the capacity to know, but feel within themselves. I mean, even the fact like, like the word the sublime gets brought up in there, um, the sublime is, doesn't just mean good. It means so massive that it makes you kind of leap states Like, the sublime is a place where wild, crazy things happen, and it comes from the fact that, you know, it's sublimation. We're going from one, you know, solid to gas without passing, you know, this this total, like, miracle of science. That's what the sublime is in literature. And this movie is so about those particular moments in people's lives when they find themselves in situations that they don't understand and either making the wrong decision, which I think is what the daughters do early on in life when they don't take up with, uh, Pepin or Lawrence. And everybody is kind of given another crack at the apple late in life by with Babette. Um, well, it's,
0: it's not clear to me that they did make the wrong decision. But it, it it is. I mean, the other thing is when I saw this, when I saw that scene that I just I read the scene, I feel like it's pretty faithful. It's not quite exactly yeah. in the movie. He actually kisses her on the forehead. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the spirit, the basic oh, that idea. Scene is, that scene is it, hot. Yeah. And, and like, because it, like, they're Whoa. singing in a very flirt- flirtatious way. And if you remember, there is a cut to the father, the dean, and Martine sitting there. And they can hear it. And you yep. can tell they're troubled by what they're hearing. Hello.
1: Hello. Arrêtons, c'est toi, c'est toi toi que que j'aime Ton cœur et mon cœur m'aiment L'amour nous unira L'amour nous unira L'amour...
0: And to answer your question about the antagonist, I think it would be tempting to see the father as the antagonist because you're right. He doesn't want Philippa to go off with this French opera singer, but I also don't think he would forbid it. I think, you know, if you think about like the Amish tradition and a lot of these kind of strict religions, There is an awareness that we're going to raise you in the way that we think is appropriate, but at a certain point, you're going to need to encounter the world, and you're going to need to make your own decision. And my sense of it, it's very quiet, but I think the father is in that mode. So he is afraid she's going to get married, but he's not going, and he's not even necessarily going to share his feelings with her. He shares it with his other sister. Mm -hmm. So maybe he's an antagonist because they're absorbing their values from their father, And he is strict and severe. But at the same time, that sentence, Mm. um, she did not imagine that her sister might have been surprised and frightened by something in her own nature. Yeah. I mean, that's the key sentence, right? And I think Philippa gets to decide whether she wants to unlock that part of her nature or not. I also think the ambiguity of the movie is great because there's something just a little lecherous about Papin. Uh-huh. too you know yep. and even though she is feeling herself uh you know she's feeling some pleasure and probably some erotic charge in the singing there's something a little bit creepy about his joy in it as well even though i think from his perspective as a frenchman he's being very restrained and chaste you know, <laughs> uh, as a roman catholic and so i don't necessarily feel like any of them are wrong you yeah. know, I, and I don't think the movie is saying any that any of them are particularly wrong, although I do think I agree with you that when it comes to the village, over time the balance gets thrown off and God. the austere dominates and there is a hardening and a bitter and a bittering. But again, Babette's corrective to this is exactly as you say, it creates a middle path. Yeah. And when they're, when the villagers are talking about how much they like the food and there's this one moment where a particular strict old lady drinks a little bit of the wine, then she drinks some water and sets it down and drinks more and of the And drinks wine. the wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's a number of moments like that where they're all permitting themselves to indulge in more pleasure than they're used yeah. to. The way they talk about it is sort of in terms of like, we're getting a glimpse of the afterlife or we're taking pleasure in the divine. You know, God has created this world and we are experiencing his bounty in a pleasurable way. And they're using their own theology to sort of justify that pleasure. And I think that's sincere, you know, yeah. you can love God in a simple life and enjoy the food that you eat. Yeah. Um, and you can even enjoy sexual Congress with the people that you love. And of course that has to happen in this village for the, because there are some kids, right. Or maybe not. I don't know. Um,
1: <laughs> well, there's a so, wonderful romantic kiss late in the movie Um, Oh, between the married couple,
0: yeah, the old married couple. Yeah, Yeah. and
1: you're not quite sure what the circumstances are. You get the sense from the dialogue,
0: the wedding, the marriage has dried up a little bit. Yeah, or that there
1: was an infidelity or something. There was
0: an infidelity. Yeah,
1: and I mean, like the particulars of it don't really matter. And I think that's the thing that we come to learn by the end of it. There's this marvelous scene with two older men who have been just at each other's throats the whole time, and they have this loving, laughing conversation about how they've cheated each other for years. Yeah. And, like, there's kind of this, like, rock and tour-esque, like... And like, they're both sort of like, and <laughs> I deserved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got me because I was cheating you also. You know, there's going to be a really
0: interesting echo of that in Big Night. Um, mm, if yeah, you remember, there's that moment that that happens, the two men. This is another one of those visual. There's a woman sitting between them, and they kind of lean back in their chairs, and they kind of give each other a side hug behind mm, the woman. And, you yes. know, another... Another example of how this movie is told so much through its sort of placement of the people and the the wonderful visuals. But, but just to wrap up my point, I think I did, but this is why I say I don't think there's an antagonist. I think... I think they're all struggling with themselves, and it mm-hmm. might be tempting to see the, the old patriarch as, as an antagonist, but I don't, I don't think that's what's intended. No, I
1: don't think he's the antagonist any more. that um, Papin could be the, the antagonist. I think the antagonist in this film is dogmatic thinking. Right. Whether that dogmatic thinking is religious or hedonist or political um I think this movie has a real axe to grind about don't get too extreme in anything and like sense the beauties of the middle path and 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 pull from everything. I think it's a magpies kind of philosophy and I and I love it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, I mean it it
1: it's marvelous
0: in that regard and it it does it my feeling towards the village is not, oh, I don't ever want to go there. It's like, I could spend a week there. Yeah. I'd probably, I'd be ready to leave. But, yeah. you know. I mean, and, especially if
1: we're getting um, uh, uh, quails and sarcophagi. Oh, yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Incredible. I mean, incredible.
0: Well, so Monica would be happy about this movie, right? Like, we get some. Oh, yes. we yes. We get lots of the scene of Babette. And, Preparing the food, and some of that looks like an oil painting, right? Like mm. the clutches of grapes or the baskets oh, yeah. full of uh, quails.
1: My speculation about the nature of the film is that this is a movie about the separation between the divine and the mundane, hmm. and that where it lands is that there shouldn't that those things should not be held apart from each other. Mm-hmm. That the divine is right here. Brilliant, and it relates
0: to. You know, one of those sort of little mini craft talks that we sometimes do, Uh, something I wanted to point out, you know, how you've been talking about the difference between uh, tone and mood and and how one senses irony. We have these little moments. One thing I noticed, obviously, with film, you cannot have the character's interiority unless you're going to do voiceover and most film critics and most filmmakers do not like voiceover. It feels like cheating. There's sometimes maybe where the voiceover is done with such a specific voice, like, say, the Big Lebowski, Mm -hmm. that it kind of works, and I think it can work in comedy for that reason. So if you don't have interiority, or if you don't have language to express interiority, but you want the audience to understand that your characters are feeling things, and you want them to understand they're feeling things rather deeply, You know, what do you have to work with? And, and, you know, the obvious thing is you have your actors Mm -hmm. and their ability to portray the emotions on their faces and in their body language and with the blocking. And I would say the actors in this movie do a superb job of all that because it's very quiet. There are no loud shouted arguments. There's almost no crying. Mm -hmm. Um, The emotions are all very quiet. And yet you almost always know what they're feeling, you know. Mm -hmm. And you also have landscape and... A very interesting choice is one of the very few ways in which this movie departs from the short story is the short story was set in Norway in a fjord a village set between two fjords and I could just imagine the filmmaker i mean at the filmmaker is danish so that might be why it's in the jutland of denmark as you say and all the reasons you pointed out earlier the sort of the yokels the severity of the landscape but also it's like that landscape this place is supposed to stand in for sort of bleak simplicity Mm -hmm. and norway is just too beautiful and too stunning for that like the, the 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 central opposition that you're talking about would just not work as well we're opposing paris with this village and the village has to look severe and what do you get you get a gray ocean with some pebbles or sea with some pebbles and there are some kind of distant grayish yellow green hills that look (laughs) like they might you could probably have one nice walk in them before you got bored of them you know it's not it's 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 a little bit of a bleak landscape and then the other thing you have is your edit i mean you have lots of tools but one of the Mm -hmm. things you have is your editing and your cuts and i think that's one of the tools i was noticing that this movie uses uh masterfully and particularly Mm -hmm. in the preparation scene Um, have you ever heard the term smash a smash edit i don't know what a smash cut is Right, same idea, smash cut. So a smash cut is a particularly abrupt cut. Um, Screenwriters sometimes use it, and it's often when you're cutting kind of in the middle of action in a way that feels abrupt to the Mm -hmm. audience, and then you're thrown right into the middle of something else that feels very uh, different. Um, Apparently, one version of this is apparently called the Gilligan cut, because on Mm -hmm. Gilligan's Island, you'd often have a character saying like, I would never try to guess what's in the Christmas presents uh, before Christmas, <laughs> and then cut to that person doing that exact right, thing. The skipper
1: skippers, like, opening uh, the Christmas present, like, yeah. tucking up one piece of the wrapping. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly. So that's a version. But there were a number of smash edits in this that are designed to exactly reveal, I think, the opposition you're talking about. And particularly, mm-hmm. there's all these moments where Martine or Philippa are spying on Babette as she's cooking the meal. And you see these, like, the wine coming and the gasping turtle is a particular oh, moment. And the one where, and, you know, we talked about this imagery that's almost like a witch's brew, you know. The, the one moment that had just this really, really powerful smash is that moment where Martine assembles everybody and they're making the agreement that they're basically not going to enjoy the dinner. They're going to right. be polite. <laughs> and then they gather around and they sing... Not very beautifully, Mm -hmm. this uh, sort of boring religious hymn and smash cut to like the cow's head and the chicken's feet in the wheelbarrow getting rolled away. It's it's just driving home that point that in Martine's world and amongst the disciples, this thing is going on. And in Babette's world, this thing is going on. And we have not yet brought them together. And in the end of the film, we do. We bring them together in a very happy way. Uh, so I just, I, you know, it's a quiet movie, but mm-hmm. in a quiet movie, little choices like that can, can go a long way.
1: Yeah, yeah, it makes it really makes a case against the bombast of uh, of a lot of more contemporary movie making, and and that doesn't have to be contemporary. I mean, Cecil DeMille is the is the sure. you know the the opposite you know in in previous times, but yeah, no, but I I
0: I I I, agree. I don't think you see this kind of quiet storytelling in contemporary Hollywood movies very often. I I was actually going to ask you if you could think of any in the next. Like in the last 10 or 15 years? Uh, uh, that 10 or 15,
1: no, but um, um, still in Skarsgård, he's young. It's probably late 90s. He's paralyzed in a mining accident. Um, God, what the heck is the name of that movie? You're not talking it, about uh, um, the, the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, are you? That's not no, still Skarsgård, though. Um, Shoot. Um, it is very sad and very quiet, um, and and might not be indicative of current Hollywood. But it did it did rise to the level. It was like a it was a well known Hollywood movie. Uh, well, maybe it'll Stalin come back. Well, Stellan Skarsgård to me. was young, isn't he? Like in his seventies by now. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a late nineties movie. Um, okay. uh, I don't know. I'm gonna. Um, I'll, I mean, I'll uh, see if uh, I can, can the Tender Mercies
0: is a good example. A river runs through it. That's from the nineties. The the only one I could think of in the last few years was Minari. Did you, did you see that? I did not see that. No. That is, I think it's an American production, but it's Korean. Um, the actors are speaking Korean for the most part to each other, although also English, too. Um, it stars Steven Yoon, mm-hmm. and um, it had a breaking wonderful the waves, c- breaking the waves, ah, breaking the waves, yes, breaking the waves. I remember that. I don't think I've ever seen it. But Minari came out just in, I think, 2019 or 2020. And -hmm. that's the only thing I could think of. And it's wonderful. Yeah. And it's a similar kind of story. It's a story about dreams deferred. Mm -hmm. um, And it's a family
1: drama um,
0: I'll look it up real
1: quickly, get the yeah. director's name. Uh, um, Beau Bo- Bo- Travai, but again, that's like early aughts. It's Claire Denis. It's about as like, it's about as French as they come. Um, but in terms of its quietude, uh, and volume, um, I mean, that's one of my favorite movies of all time, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's, I mean, it felt like, I think the reason I'm loving it so much is it felt like the complications of a checkoff play. Um, years and years and years ago when I was still like stu- studying theater, um, one of the like acting classes I was in, we were all doing a off scene study because that's what you do. Um, and there was a scene that wasn't working, wasn't working, wasn't working. And the guy who was running the class was like, I'm going to try something. And he asked one of the other students like, hey, while they're doing this scene, I want you to be the maid, and it, it, it like there's a maid in the scene. She doesn't have any lines, but it's written into the script mm-hmm. that the maid comes in and like straightens a picture. And I think it's in the Three Sisters. And what's happening is one of the sisters is talking with uh, one of the soldiers, and they're they're like a lot of Chekhov. Maybe they're gonna fall in love, but probably their lives are going to be ruined. Um, and the two of the, and adding that made to the scene, all of a sudden made the two actors who were playing the scene have to like talk quite a bit more quietly. Interesting. And holy crap. Yeah. Like it just came to life. And I, and I just feel like that's what this movie is doing. And it's so tasteful. And so much is happening while well, it looks like so little is happening, and it's I, I'm 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 really I I've known about this movie forever because you don't operate in like books and movies and stuff like that without hearing about what a great movie Babette's Feast is, and then you see it and you're like, okay, yeah, it's great. I just thought of a new wrap up question
0: for us, mm. which could be we could certainly answer the question, "Will you watch this again?" But also, did it. Did it meet expectations?
1: This this exceeded my expectations.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would say me too. Although one thing... I would say on the whole, it exceeded my expectations. Although I will say, in the way that it had been talked up, I expected the sort of ecstasy of the feast to be even grander. Uh Like I was imagining... Like the the, uh, the Lawrence and Ma- Martine, like taking a long walk on the beach and kissing. I, th- I kind of thought it was going to go a little bit bigger than it actually went. Um, I'm so glad it didn't. <laughs> mm, mm. Do you have trivia? I do.
1: I do. Okay. I think let's do trivia. This is going to be a shoe-in for you, I think, because it sounds like from what the, the, the research you, you've done, mm. I think you're going to get this in like, without me even needing to finish the question. Um, but, um, so, Babette's Feast is based on a novella by Karen Blixen, uh, I can't pronounce her final name, uh, F- Finica, I would guess? Um, I don't know, I mean, also anyway. sometimes known as Isaac Denison? Yes, also published under the pen name Isaac Dennison. Later, Blixen was played by what great dame of cinema? Meryl Streep. A. Street. Excellent. Correct. <laughs> Say your answer again for the for, your, for the listeners. Meryl Streep. Sorry, do you want to give me the choices? No, 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 no. I, I I threw Sigourney Weaver and Dame Judi Dench in there, which I they thought all could
0: all they all could have done it. They all could have uh, done it. Uh, I, uh, I I actually happen to have seen an interview from years ago where Meryl Streep was talking about being cast in that role, and she uh, she sort of hilariously said that you know. Um, she's beautiful but i don't know that she was thought of as sexy Mm. um and and so apparently for whatever reason she she wore a push-up bra uh, because (laughs) she she had heard maybe the director had expressed concerns that she wouldn't be able to quite live up to the sensuality of the role
1: so she um that was her that was her audition solution to that that is awesome that's such a meryl streep kind of story you can imagine her telling that story you know too about being like well, you know, like nobody's ever described me as as sexy before.
0: Yeah. And, yeah, you know, at a dinner party in Manhattan, she would tell me. Totally. A, yeah. yeah. And like an
1: entire generation of of men and women are like,
0: "Meryl Streep, you're quite sexy." Indeed, indeed. Um and really cool. Oh my god. Uh, and a and a total badass actor. Um I'm afraid mine is a little bit harder, unfortunately. Yours are always harder than mine. <laughs> I, 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 I hope I'm not overdoing it. I try to make them gettable. Um, I, think it, I think it's good. I like, I like, I like the, the dichotomy we're evolving. Um. Uh, I mean, I feel like maybe yours need to be a little harder for me. But, um, okay, so mine is about the cafe, the real Cafe Anglais, which is a okay. real restaurant. Yep. Um, and it was named after a treaty between France and England in the early 1800s. Mm-hmm. The shell, the real chef, as far as I could tell, they never had a woman chef. The real chef was Edolphe Dugare. Um, and uh, it was, though, very much the way the general describes it in that sort of last little toast scene. So which of the following is a real menu item prepared at the Café Anglais? A, potage de banque, which was dedicated to the head of the National Bank of France. B, pomme aux boulette de mouton C the three emperors dinner which was a meal prepared for three European monarchs or D le pain pour sautant <laughs> monsieur uh, Nivin. following my rule about when I get to use a D <laughs> can you translate item D for me uh, Rabbit for a certain Mr. Niven
1: uh, I, <laughs> I was wondering if you had, if you had somehow um, wrapped a ring into that somehow um, uh, Okay yeah, that would have, uh, oh that would
0: have been good uh, yeah like um, potage, I did not.
1: potage de banque um, yeah. give me the second one Pomme au
0: boulet de mouton
1: If you want, I'll translate it. I mean, that's like apples. It's like a round apple of mutton.
0: Well, keep in mind that often uh, pomme is uh, a short shortening of pomme de terre. P- potato,
1: yeah. Yeah, we're doing, yeah. I mean, apples of the earth.
0: Uh, we don't say "pom de terre frites. We say "pom frites. Yeah, <laughs> frites. Um,
1: and what was C? The Three Emperor's Dinner. I'm going to go with B.
0: Uh, uh, the <laughs> Let me give you the translation. <laughs> Potatoes with balls of sheep.
1: Yeah, yeah. That, that, that sounds like... I've had <laughs> so many French y- meals that are like the translation is something like that. We're like, or, ooh, ooh, that uh, sounds romantic. And then you change it, and you're like, oh, my God.
0: (laughs) Another translation would be potatoes with sheep balls. Um, The correct answer is the Three Emperor's Dinner, uh, which was a 9,000-franc meal prepared for three European monarchs, including Alexander II of Russia and one of the Bismarcks and Mm -hmm. someone else. Um, It was a meal that sounds quite a bit like the one that Babette prepared. In fact, Mm -hmm. maybe even was the inspiration, particularly if if you factor in... The um, price tag. The price tag. Yeah. So honestly, calling the meal uh, potatoes with sheep balls was my attempt to make it a little bit easier for you. (laughs) A little (laughs) bit of sleeping.
1: Well, I mean, like, the reason I went with that is, like, French culinary names have this hilarious... Right. No, it it
0: could be... You could imagine, like, you know taking mutton, mincing it with some spices, putting it mm-hmm. into a baller, and then, you know, putting it in, you know, like the sarcophagi a uh, right. little yeah. like dumplings that the uh, the quail were cooked in. So. Yeah, I mean like oh. like
1: you know, I mean the, the, the literal translation of Kyle and sarcophaga is, you know, like like quail coffins. Right. <laughs> like right. it's really um Yeah. I mean there I mean that's the thing about French cooking that everybody forgets is that like at its nature, it is a peasant food that mm-hmm. has been, you know, taken... It's it's like if you took the hamburger and gave it to, like, Wiley Dufresne or something.
0: Which, and, I
1: and mean, we... In America, the hamburger has been elevated to yeah. that, you know... Um, the three emperors sounded too implausible for the mid-19th century Europe to me.
0: <laughs> well, you keep in mind back then that a lot of people who we would probably just refer to as kings now mm-hmm. referred to themselves as emperors back then. Because think about... Think about the size of European principalities, man. It's like you you control, like, the Rhineland and, like, Luxembourg in Belgium. You're an emperor. Like, that's yeah, three totally. countries. You know, they're countries. I mean, how many languages are there in mainland Europe? Like, 92? So and many, yeah. each one of those counts as a kingdom. So, basically, if you conquer, like, three of them, you're an emperor. You're an emperor, you know? yeah. So, I mean, I mean like, like, what we Napoleon call Germany... Is.
1: Is like was like six hundred principalities for the exactly. longest time. Exactly. Yes. In fact, basically the guy who was the king of Germany was the
0: emperor. I forget. I could look up who that guy actually was, but um, he was one of them. And I believe the the French monarch at the time was all, or it might have been Napoleon the third, and then Alexander of Russia. Um, you know, they had conquered Lithuania or Estonia or something like that, and, and Siberia, so he got to be an emperor. Everybody got to be an emperor back then.
1: <laughs> and then everybody got to eat at the Café Anglais.
0: But, yeah, indeed, and by 1977, to be an emperor, you had to like have conquered the entire galaxy. And <laughs> yeah. um, so we, I think maybe you and I have a pretty big idea of what an emperor is. We're like an emperor. Like, I mean, if he doesn't control all the planets, <laughs> he's not an emperor. He's merely a... Right,
1: yeah. A, if, if he's, he's merely not the a, a, emperor, if he's, he's not merely a moth. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, next up, listeners, we are going to be watching The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, directed by Peter Greenaway, is what we have on tap. And we have heard that there
0: may be some difficulty in obtaining that. So I suggest you check your local library and you check if you have, if you're a person who's lucky to have a DVD rental store, check there. If those fail, send us an email at hello at at uppermiddlebrow.com. We might, there might, it's possible we might be able to be helpful in this quest. And I'll say no more.
1: Well, you uh, will say the credits. I will say
0: the credits. Upper middle brow is a small <laughs> point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the porters, busboys, barbacks, and stars of the dish pit. I almost said of this dipshit.
1: Uh, uh, that's probably old. This is probably uh, this copy. is old. This is the same outro from yeah, uh, Jesse from Dukes our and our, chew, our chewing episode. So what? Uh,
0: what? Are, we're not bad. Bad. So he's got. She's got the like. He's got the. Table waiter and he's got the, she's
1: got the, um, we are, we are the, um, yeah, we are, we are Eric and the cart driver. (laughs) (laughs) Jesse Dukes and Chris Bag are Eric,
0: the waiter and the cart driver sipping and enjoying our family meal while Babek slaves away music by Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes, design and website by Chris Bagg. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. The other thing you can do at uppermiddlebrow.com is find a link to our listener survey and fill it out. And if you want, we'll enter you into a drawing to win a storied Bluetooth speaker, which is perfect for listening to Upper Middle brow. So go to uppermiddlebrow.com for the link to the survey. We really would like you to do that. And if you think we ramble too much, this is your chance to tell us that. This is your chance to have your chance. In how Remember, it's all essentially it.
1: ramble. So be careful of what you ask us to cut. But go ahead. Tell us. Um, we could ramble. We could. It could be a shorter ramble. It could be a longer a ramble. ramble. <laughs> yeah. That is an option. Um, uh, as a reminder, everybody, Jesse and I are both writers and editors, and we can help you with your writing, podcasting or editing projects. You can see our portfolios and learn more at our websites, crispbag.com and jessiedukes.com. Check them out and get in touch if you want to talk about how we can help you with your project, big or small. The last oh, thing I want to say about Babette's Feast was, did you think that, in fact, this entire dinner was going to be derailed by the cart driver drinking all the wine while the dad was cooking the meat. I had I had anxiety that he Me was gonna too. do that he was gonna
0: do he was gonna drink the really expensive vintage or he was gonna upset the fire and there would be a fire in the kitchen or something yeah. like that. Which is what would have happened in an American movie. I know, totally. Movie. I was And like, it would have been okay, but like the guests would have had to come in and like you know, and then they would have had to start the dinner and they'd do it at someone else's house and it you know, they would have all come together. But nope, nope, nope. it was just He was just enjoying his wine. Yeah, he
1: merely had a wonderful evening. (laughs) Yes, as as did we all. Yeah. Hey,
0: everybody. Uh, One more thing before we go. I just want to remind you that the next film is The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, directed by Peter Greenaway. And it is hard to find. Uh, I don't think it's streaming in North America, uh, there are some dvds available on the used markets and places like ebay um, your library might have it uh, you might be able to get an interlibrary loan um, maybe you have a video store that will have it um, if you absolutely can't find it and you want to watch it uh, send an email to hello at uppermiddlebrow.com and we might have a suggestion we might be able to help the other thing about the movie is it has very explicit and disturbing violence including domestic violence and it has very explicit sex and nudity. Uh, I would probably not watch it with a kid, um, and you might want to consider whether you are okay viewing it. Um, We totally get if you need to skip that one. But if you can handle the sex and violence, uh, we think it is worth watching. It's pretty incredible. It's worth talking about. It's worth thinking about. So thank you for listening, and we hope we'll see you soon.